Every month, the federal government spends hundreds of billions, hundreds of billions on entitlement programs. Of course, that's all right because all of that money goes toward helping the poor. If you think that, I'm afraid you have to think again. Joining us today, John Kogan, the author of The High Cost of Good Intentions. Uncommon Knowledge, now. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. A fellow at the Hoover Institution here at Stanford, John Kogan received his undergraduate and doctoral degrees from UCLA. He has devoted his career to studying American domestic policy, especially fiscal and budgetary policy. Dr. Kogan acquired practical experience during the 1980s when he served in senior positions in the Reagan administration, first at the Department of Labor and then at the Office of Management and Budget. John Kogan's newest book, The High Cost of Good Intentions, A History of U.S. Federal Entitlement Programs. John Kogan, welcome. Well, thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here. John, first things first, what are we talking about when we're talking about entitlement programs? Why are they a separate category different from other kinds of spending? Well, it's actually a great, a great question to start off with, Peter. Um, you know, entitlements have come to mean very different things to different people. To some people, an entitlement is a handout. It's an unearned benefit. Right. So for them, entitlements are kind of a, um, a derogatory term. Um, to other people, an entitlement is a benefit that cannot be taken away. A person has a legal right uh, to that benefit, and that right is irre irrevocable. And so we have very different views about what entitlements are. For us today, um, we'll adopt the non-loaded definition right. of entitlements. An entitlement is simply a... Um, an entitlement program is simply a program that provides a benefit under the law to anyone who qualifies for the, the uh, benefit as provided in the law. So let's take Social Security as a good example. Uh, if you've worked in a covered job for 10 years and you reach the age of 66, you are entitled under the law to receive a benefit. You have a legal right to receiving that benefit. But since these benefits are prescribed in law, uh, Congress can write another law to change those benefits. And so the legal right is a little bit attenuated in the sense that any future Congress can change uh, that right. So what are the best examples of entitlements, the entitlements that I cover in the book? Well, there's Social Security, Medicare, food stamps, the Medicaid program, supplemental security income, the Earned Income Tax Credit. So there's a bevy of, of these programs. What makes them different right. Right, than, than other programs in the budget is that from an expenditure or budgetary standpoint, they are open-ended. The amount that gets expended in any year on an entitlement is determined by the number of people that qualify for the benefit and the benefits that are paid to each qualified person. And so ex ante, when the government's trying to set a budget for the total, uh, it has to estimate the number of entitled persons, the number of recipients, and it has to estimate the average benefit that each one will get. 
in a very complex country with a lot of moving parts, that's a very difficult thing to do. You can only kind of know after the fact what an entitlement expenditure is going to be. You can't forecast it very well in advance. Okay. So the, the critical distinction, say for example on defense spending, Congress says this year we will spend $750 billion, Department of Defense, you figure out how to spend that. But on entitlement spending, God tells you how many 66-year-olds there are in America. There just are so and so many 66-year-olds. Right. And Congress, I, God, but the demographics tell Congress how much it's going to spend. Absolutely right. The demographics, the economic conditions, and the behavior of individuals who might wish to qualify for that benefit. Okay. All right. So this is a history. You, 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 it's entitled a history of federal entitlement programs, and you say several times in the book, look, folks, I'm just telling you what's happened here. So I bear that in mind. We'll get to the history in a moment. I'd like just a kind of snapshot of where we are, where entitlement programs have brought us. And I'm going to quote a couple of passages from the high cost of good intentions. Quote, 55%, 55% of all U.S. households receive cash or an in-kind assistance from at least one major federal entitlement program. The $2.4 trillion the federal government currently spends annually on entitlements equals $7,500 for every man, woman, and child living in the United States. Close quote. Now, what I find so striking about that is that I immediately rem remembered the controversy when what, five years ago Mitt Romney was running for president and in off what he thought was an off-the-record moment, he said to a, a group of donors, look, folks, we have a serious problem. 47% of people in this country receive federal benefits, so of course they're going to vote for bigger government. And here, if you measure it by household, it's well over half. How can this be, John? Well, it's, How can this be moving so that over half of people get some, some federal assistance? It, it is a truly an extraordinary uh, um, place that we've arrived at. When you go back and look at the origins of each of these modern entitlements, right. each one was established with what you and I would agree, and I'm sure most of your uh, listeners would agree, right. is, is a, a set of good intentions. Um, the Great Society and the New Deal programs were established to provide a safety net against poverty for those in old age and for those younger people who uh, ended up in poverty through no fault of their own. Right. From that small, honorable beginning, we end up with a set of programs, as you said, that costs 7500 for every man, woman, and child and, and provide assistance to over half of the population. Here's one more quotation from the High Cost of Good Intentions. The amount the federal government spends each year on entitlement programs is five times the money necessary to lift every person out of poverty. So the original good intention, let's help the poor. And we are now spending five times more than necessary to satisfy that original and honorable good intention. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? It's a very good way of illustrating just how different the current system is from those original noble intentions. Very little goes to alleviating poverty. Okay. You said 20%? All right. Now, the, how it happened, I want to come to the history. And you start with the Revolutionary War. Pension programs for Revolutionary War veterans. And I would like to s explain to you why I'm going to sit here with my eyes wide and my jaw dropping as I listen to the early part of the history of Revolutionary War pensions, Civil War pensions, because I thought 
And I believe that a lot of people of my general age and education also thought that it all started with the New Deal. We'll come to the New Deal in a moment, but it didn't start with the New Deal, and you proved that it didn't. Tell us about Revolutionary War pensions and Civil War pensions. So uh, the way I've put it is uh, entitlements are as old as the Republic. Right. And the Revolu Revolutionary War Pension Program, which was a, a program that provided assistance initially for uh, soldiers who had served in the Continental Army and who had been disabled uh, as a result of wartime service. Um, that was the very first entitlement. Um, within about 20 years, Congress decided that they would expand that entitlement beyond those that had served in the Continental Army to those that had served in the state militia and to those that had volunteered for service. Again, so long as they were disabled in wartime service. Congress then subsequently extended the program again and again. By the 1830s, when we would have thought that most uh, Civil War veterans were, uh, had gone to their final reward in heaven, uh, Congress uh, extended the um, assistance to anyone who had served in any capacity, regardless of disability, uh, during uh, the Revolution. And that was the first inkling of the explosive nature of these entitlement programs. Congress thought at the time that they might be extending benefits to just a few remaining Revolutionary War pensioners. Uh, but in the end, uh, over 33,000 uh, Revolutionary War pensioners ended up collecting uh, benefits, three times the number that were collecting benefits just prior to the war. And then about 60 years later, they do it all over again. You write that in 1873, so we have a civil war, right? Uh, pensions for Civil War soldiers, 1873, about 200,000 Americans received Civil War pensions. By the 1890s, 20 years later, that number had risen to one million. Same kind of pattern? Absolutely, exactly the same kind of pattern. What's, I call the Civil War Pension Program the first grand entitlement program because it was so large compared to the Revolutionary War uh, Pension Program. By the 1890s, when nearly a million uh, individuals were receiving Civil War pensions, the Civil War Pension Program accounted for 40% of all federal spending. Now, federal spending was a lot lower then than it is right, today, but it was 40% of the budget. Now, you mentioned that 8,000 uh, um, pensioner number in uh, 1873. 1873, right? 1873 right? right? You would have thought that by 1873, anyone who was going to qualify for a disability pension based upon their disabling injury in wartime service would have already qualified, that there'd be no new people qualifying. If you'd been shot by 1865, <laughs> you'd certainly have known it by 1873. <laughs> Fair point. All right. All right. And so it was a series of expansions, uh, both uh, legislative and administrative, that ended up expanding the program to cover uh, uh, Civil War Union veterans, Civil War Union veterans only. Uh, the Confederate soldiers need not apply. Right. Um, uh, uh, they ended up covering uh, Union soldiers that had, um, uh, were disabled in the 1890s, regardless of whether their disability was related to wartime service or not. And then eventually by the end of the um, century, 
uh, virtually all uh, Civil War um, veterans, Union veterans, were covered by the program the same way uh, as it happened with the Revolutionary War. All right, so this is a good moment. We're coming up to the New Deal comes next, but we're coming up to a couple of the big themes of your book. And one is uh, the, way, the reason for this ratchet. They get bigger and bigger and bigger, and that starts right back at the beginning of the Republic with the Revolutionary War pensions and every entitlement program since. Why? Because, John Cogan writes, uh, because of, quote, a well-meaning human impulse to treat all similarly situated people equally under the law, close quote. Explain that. How does that account for the ratchet? So uh, what happens when an entitlement is created? Um, uh, you end up establishing forces that cause the expansion, and you just hit on the main force. Okay. So when an entitlement is created, usually the eligibility rules confine the group of um, recipients fairly narrowly for policy reasons or budgetary reasons. Continental Army, soldiers, and seamen only, right? right. But over time, those individuals that are just outside of that eligibility circle, that just don't qualify for the benefits start clamoring for assistance on the ground that they're no less worthy of assistance than the individuals who are receiving benefits. So in the case of the militia, they bled just as much, they suffered just as much for their injuries uh, in the War of Independence as members of the Continental Army did. And so Congress eventually acquiesces um, and expands the entitlement to include them. But all that does is bring another group of just individuals- outside the circle. Just outside the circle. They start clamoring. And you get this constant pressure for extending benefits to equally worthy individuals. Everybody wants to come in from the dark to be near the campfire, so you need to keep throwing logs on that fire. That's right. These, these pressures, Peter, now are, um, magnified when you have large budget surpluses. And of course, they're magnified by the desire uh, by elected officials uh, to be reelected. Right, now this is a, okay, so we mentioned the Civil War veterans, and these expansions are taking place in the 1880s and the 1890s. Another, one other interesting thing is happening in the 1880s and 1890s, which is that the Republicans, the GOP, is consolidating its power as the dominant political party in the country and that lasts right actually into the early part of the 20th century with yes. Grover Cleveland as the honorable <laughs> exception. So, and, and, and uh, you know, you can read a lot of American history. I've read a fair amount myself and you think, well, the Republican Party, they're consolidating their gains in the Northeast. They're the party of industry and developing. Uh -huh. Nobody has ever said they bought their way into <laughs> it by using entitlements. And yet Kogan says, of course they did. Just look at the facts. Look at the data. Uh, in the book, I make the case uh, that uh, uh, the provision of, of uh, pensions really did play an important role in this realignment of the electorate uh, in the 1880s, 1890s, and first part of the 20th century behind the Republican Party. The Republican Party had a great platform. They, had a, they were a party of high tariffs to protect the manufacturing sector and the workers in the cities. And the high tariffs generated an enormous amount of revenue. 
And with those revenues, they lavished pensions on Civil War veterans. It was a wonderful combination. Uh, And it proved to be very, very effective in in their uh, electoral uh, prospects. So you've got the impulse that lives in the heart of every decent human being to treat people fairly and and those who are similar. If you're just outside the circle, oh, come on in. Then you've got the discovery that in in times of economic, when Congress has money to spend, it'll spend it. Right. And then, and this is something that doesn't seem to be true of the Revolutionary War pensions exactly, but certainly by the last part of the 19th century, politicians have figured it out. They can use entitlements to solidify support. Okay, now we come to the 1930s and the New Deal, the high cost of good intentions. The New Deal broke new ground by extending entitlements to people in the general population who had performed no particular service to the federal government, close quote. Why is that an important departure? Well, when you think about a pension or entitlements prior to uh, the New Deal, they were confined to wartime uh, soldiers who had suffered um, disabilities. Uh, and eventually that group, it was a closed group, only people who served could get it, and eventually that group would pass on and the entitlement expenditures would de- decline. Right. Now, very often that would take a long time and a surprisingly uh, long time. If I could make it a little aside, there is still one Civil War pension recipient alive today. That's how long the entitlement How is that lasts. even possible? Here we are, 152 years <laughs> from the end of the Civil War, and they were still paying out. Paying out still and uh, her name is Irene Triplett. Uh, and Irene's father, uh, Mose Triplett, uh, was a uh, first a Confederate uh, soldier, but then he changed sides towards the end of the war to the Union side. Um, Mose uh, married Elida Hall uh, in 1924, I believe. He was 78 and she was 28. I see, I see. Yes, he was the recipient of a pension. Um, And so when he passed on, his wife um, received that pension. And then when she passed on, Irene received the pension. Irene is the daughter. The daughter of that late. I'm sorry, yes. Right, all right. Irene was born, I believe, in 1930. And so she is still with us. Yes, yes. Well, God, it's a modest pension, believe me. Uh, Yes, right, right, right. Right? Uh, But in any event, um, uh, so these entitlements for wartime soldiers were they were confined to a particular group in society that was not a large group, and it was a group that was going to pass on. The New Deal entitlements, on the other hand, opened up entitlements to members of the general population who had never performed any service to their country. So to individuals, just because they reached a particular age, it opened up unemployment A population benefits. that would constantly renew itself. And then it would, right. So there was no end to it. Right? Right. And this phenomenon where it's once you've granted a benefit, it's very difficult to take it away when you have this continually renewable group that's entering, the benefits continue to escalate. If you have a case, on the other hand, with wartime veterans, one group passes away, another war starts, and you're in effect starting over again. You get to rethink it, at least in theory. That's right, and try a reset. Right. Right. So social security, I'd never thought of this before, but social security would be the first time 
in American history when the federal government committed itself to paying a certain kind of benefit to a certain class of people until the end of time. Outside of those that had performed public service. Right, but I mean to yes. say th those who perform public service would die. Yes. But fine. from now on, we give anybody, uh, you reach a certain age, and until the end of the republic, everybody who reaches that age gets, gets a get, that's Okay, right. that's a stag, all right. And then uh, from the New Deal, quickly to the 1960s and the Great Society, quoting again from the high cost of good intentions, the launch of Lyndon Johnson's Great Society program in 1965 marks the beginning of a remarkable 10-year period of entitlement legislation that is un precedented in U.S. history, close quote. So with Great Society, we see the creation of Medicare and Medicaid, dramatic expansions in Social Security and other programs. And um, quoting you once again, revenues from a rapidly expanding economy, economies booming in the early 60s, provided the fuel. Okay, so what do we, why do we get this, the economy is booming, but this is something new. The Great Society, we worked for a man, Ronald Reagan, mm -hmm. who didn't really have that much against the New Deal. But it was the Great Society that he thought was the overreach. How do you distinguish the Great Society from the New Deal? Or, or, or was our beloved Gipper simply mistaken about that? Is it just a kind of line extension of products the federal <laughs> government is already providing? Well, it's a, it's a very good question. I'm not sure I've got a, a great answer for you. But, but there were important differences between the New Deal and the Great Society. Uh, the New Deal established social insurance as the central means of providing assistance to senior citizens. Right. There would be no means test. You would get the benefit independent of your income. In welfare, on the, on the other hand, the New Deal said the federal government is not going to be involved in welfare. It is going to give grants to states so they can run their programs as they see fit. The federal government will provide a means of support for those welfare programs. What the, New De what the Great Society did was, of course, expand the social insurance programs, creating Medicare, uh, the sister of the Social Security program, right. um, and expanding the disability insurance program. But its major change, I think, was involving the federal government directly into the provision of welfare for individuals. And that's the main, I think, distinction between the New Deal, which was kind of a hands-off right. policy when it came to welfare, and the Great Society, where the federal government came, uh, became involved in writing the rules, writing the regulations, uh, and ordering states uh, to modify their rules and regulations. Now, you mentioned earlier that I think it was with the Civil War, uh, you get tariffs providing revenues, the money's rolling into Congress, so it's in good times, they're willing to spend on entitlements. And we've got the good times during the early 60s, so right. the federal revenues are expanding, the Great Society it makes a certain kind of sense, but the New Deal was not good times. Mm -hmm. You've got this strange ratchet, which you address in the book, right. where they grow during good times because the revenues there are there, and they grow during bad times, why? So. In the 19th century, growing during good times was simply because there was money on the table and right. Congress will spend any money that they have and then some. The New Deal and the Great Society changed the nature of entitlements to become sort of anti-poverty programs. Right. So now during economic downtimes, 
when the misery of the population increases, the extent of impoverishness, uh, uh, impoverishment increases, right. you end up generating pressures for expanded entitlements. And so now when you think about the entitlement problem we have, when we get economic good times and the um, revenues flow into the treasury, Congress will start expanding entitlements. Right. But it's also the case at the other end of the business cycle. When you have uh, economic recession, there's a bigger need to provide assistance to individuals who are suffering from that recession. There's a larger number of them suffering, and so you get another round of expansion. So the argument, no matter what the state of the economy, is always expand the entitlement programs. Right. Expand them because we have the money and we can do so, or expand them because we don't have the money and people need help. And when you look at the 60s and the 70s, the late 60s and 70s, we had very big economic cycles, yes. especially in the 70s. And you see at the top of the cycle, expansions in Social Security, at the bottom of the cycle, expansions in welfare. Got it. And one more point, I, I wanna to return to the present day, but before we finish this sort of quick historical overview, if Republicans played politics with the Civil War pensions, the Democrats played politics with the New Deal and the Great Society, again, the high cost of good intentions, quote, Democrats raised the practice of using entitlements for electoral gain to a finely honed skill. From the end of World War II through 1975, seven of the 10 legislative increases in Social Security monthly benefits took effect during an election year, close quote. So is that word, what's the word we're looking for here? Shameless, brazen, or just politics as usual? That's just the way Washington does business now. It is the, it is the way, can I, can I, can I uh, tell you a little story? Of course. About the, uh, the last of these uh, large, uh, 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 increases during an election, and it occurred right. in 1972, and it's very, very illustrative of the way the system worked. All right. So at that time, Social Security was not indexed, or benefits were not indexed to inflation. So if there was inflation, Congress would have to raise uh, benefits through legislation. So in early 1972, the process was going along as normal. The House had agreed to a something like a 5% increase. Senate wanted a benefit increase that was a little bit higher to compensate individuals for inflation. But it was an election year. And there were four candidates on the Democratic side running for uh, the party's nomination. McGovern, Muskie. M McGovern, Muskie, Mills. Wilbur Mills. Yes, the chairman of the committee that writes Social Security legislation. Right and the happy warrior, Hubert, Hubert Humphrey. Right? And so the bidding process began after the Senate. Muskie came in with a 20% benefit hike, Mills a 20% benefit hike, McGovern a 20% benefit hike. These are big hikes. Big, big increases for everybody on the rolls then, and of course it would apply Forever. to all future recipients as well. And so then uh, Hubert Humphrey uh, capped off the bidding with a 25% uh, increase in benefits. So this is all in the spring of 1972. Right. So then uh, in June, um, members of the Senate on the Democratic side were looking for a bill that they could attach the 20% or 25% increase to. And they latched onto a debt ceiling bill. The debt ceiling was set to expire at midnight on June 30th. 
and the Democrats got together and proposed to, uh, to um, add to that debt ceiling bill a 20% increase in Social Security benefits. So they did that a few days before the 30th, uh, debated it, uh, went, to the, uh, went for a vote uh, on the 30th, got sent over to the House of Representatives at the last minute. Uh, the House had no other alternative but to sign the bill or to pass the bill, uh, and Richard Nixon signed the debt ceiling bill with the 20% increase uh, right before midnight. Nixon was upset. He didn't think this was very fiscally responsible and said so in his uh, veto message, or his, his, his signing, signing message, message, excuse me, his signing message. The um, scheduled increase was to occur in the October Social Security checks. Just before November, which is election month. Exactly. Right. All right. So when the checks went out to over 25 million recipients, it contained a little note from the Social Security Administration, which said your check contains a 20% benefit increase um, due to the actions of the 93rd Congress and Richard M. Nixon. <laughs> making it Who clear. won re-election right. in 1972. Right. That's right. Wow. Right. So... One president tried to, tried to change the rules of the way Washington worked and rein in entitlements. And uh, the, there's a, a long and fascinating chapter on Ronald Reagan, but I, this is television. We've got to move. So let me just quote your conclusion here. Despite the Reagan administration's achievements, the entitlement state in 1989, the year he left office, remained largely intact. And the achievement was... He didn't actually shrink it, right. but he did keep it from growing, roughly. Isn't that right? 1.4% a year in, in uh, real per capita terms was the growth rate. The smallest growth rate uh, for any uh, administration uh, in the post-World War II period, except for a period where, uh, where the GI Bill was winding down. Right. But no other president um, in the uh, modern era uh, took such a comprehensive approach to reining in entitlements and no other president was as successful as President Reagan was. But as you said, the success was pretty limited. Um, entitlement, and spending growth. And it took everything. We were there, yes. and you were in the Office of Management and Budget. It took everything you had just to keep this thing from getting bigger, didn't it? That's exactly right. And, and most of the changes that were made would have a long-term effect, but they were enacted in 1981 and in 1982 and a little bit in 1983 with Social Security reform. But after that, after that... So you get your reforms early in the administration. Yes, yes. And then Reagan hung on for the next six years, five years, uh, as Congress again and again tried to undo uh, the entitlement changes that had been made in the early uh, part of his administration. And he was largely successful in combating most of the large um, reversals of his uh, policies. Uh, and hence uh, the success. And even though he is succeeded by a fellow Republican and indeed the man who served as Ronald Reagan's own vice president for eight years, George H.W. Bush, the entitlements take off all over again. Yes. And they've been, they, it, the, the, all the vectors have been pointing up ever since. Is that correct? That's right. The trajectory has been ever upward since. Okay. We've spoken about the fiscal cost but you talk, you write with great passion, really, an overused word, about the human cost. 
Let me, let me quote a couple of passages and ask you to explain what you mean. Social Security and Medicare have reduced the perceived need by young workers to save for their retirement and have induced senior citizens to, go for, to forego years of productive and rewarding employment. Close quote. Well, if you're not saving when you should be saving and you're not, you, you, you retire too early, that's a distortion of the entire workforce, of people's entire careers. Correct? Correct. It's bad, John. <laughs> and getting worse. Let's go back to the first um, statistic that you mentioned. Right. 54% of all households in the U.S. are receiving some entitlement benefit. Now, for some of those individuals... 55%, according to you in oh, your own book. We, we updated it. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm sure you're right. It's 54. Okay, okay. Right? Right? Or 55. 55. 55 is what's in print. All right, go ahead. Right. In any event, the, um, uh, with such a large fraction of the population receiving assistance, the incentive effects that the assistance carries with it is going to have an effect upon the economy as a whole. The whole economy. Right. And so if we go back 30, 40 years, when we thought about the welfare system, we would recognize that our efforts to help people often ended up being counterproductive because we created incentives for individuals to um, stay out of the labor force, to not get married, to have a child out of wedlock, uh, um, actions that were probably not necessarily in the long-term interests of those individuals. Right. So we recognized that along with the assistance that we were providing to individuals in need, we had to be mindful of the incentives that we were creating for these individuals to behave in certain ways. Right. Now that 54, 55% of the, of, the, um, uh, of the population is receiving these benefits, We've, we now have an economy-wide problem. It used to be a microcosm of welfare right. recipients. Now it's an economy-wide problem. So one more quote. You touched on it just now. One more quotation here. The system has created incentives for young women to bear children out of wedlock and remain unmarried, and it has discouraged fathers of young children from meeting their parental responsibilities. Close quote. And I have to try something on you. What came to mind when I read that passage was the famous report, it was just, just over 50 years ago, Daniel, pa Daniel Patrick Moynihan's, it was called The Negro Family, The Case for National Action. And he wrote that the fundamental problem is that of family structure. The, the black family in urban ghettos is crumbling, 1965. Mm -hmm. And that was an alarming fact to Daniel Patrick Moynihan. And when he wrote that in 1965, the first year of the Great Society, the illegitimacy rate among African-Americans was 25%. And it shocked Daniel Patrick Moynihan into writing that famous memorandum. Today, after more than half a century of the Great Society, the illegitimacy rate among whites is 36%. Among Hispanics is more than 50%. And among African-Americans is more than 72%. And your argument is that some unknowable portion, but some portion of that, is because of, well, of federal entitlement programs. Yes, I think. Um, we have been spending hundreds of billions of dollars to dissolve the American family. Well, I wouldn't quite put it as, <laughs> right. as strongly as that. I would think about it a, a, a little bit uh, differently. That is, I would go back to the title 
of the book. That the intentions of these programs are good. Uh, they're honorable, they're noble. Um, but not enough attention has been paid to the cost that is incurred both at the individual level and at the national level. And we need to pay more attention to those costs. And when it comes to welfare, try to design programs that provide that assistance to those who, through, through no fault of their own, uh, are in poverty, uh, but at the same time don't have these incentives for counterproductive behavior. All right. So you know what the final couple of questions have to be. What do we do about this? <laughs> what do we do about this? Here we have what you discover. What you write is that the problem is worse than I thought, and um, and I've read a fair amount about this over the years. It goes right back to the founding of the republic, as you say. We now are in a position in which we're moving our money around. The redistribution is so extreme that more Americans are getting something from the federal government than not. Politicians have figured out how to use this to buy votes. So politicians aren't going to give it up very easily. And we are now in a position where if the economy is bad, entitlement programs should expand. And if the economy is good, well, entitlement programs should expand then too. And this is the part that breaks my heart. Eight years of Ronald Reagan and John Kogan at the, in the <laughs> Office of Management and Budget just held it, in, prevented it from, it was a kind of eight-year containment. And then it took off all over again. So what do we do? What do, I mean, there is an argument that it's over, that this is one thing. Uh, the founders spotted the importance of freedom of speech. They spotted all kinds of pernicious effects that democracy might have unless they gave us the Bill of Rights. They construct this. But they missed the willingness of Americans to pick each other's pockets by way of the federal government and the American experiment is doomed. We're in such a trap right now, we can't get out of it. Well, that's not a very optimistic story. Well, I'm hoping that you will tell me I'm wrong in every particular. <laughs> well, uh, other parts of the book, I talk about um, efforts that have been made to rein in entitlements. Right. Now, if we could get the growth of entitlements down to the level that Ronald Reagan did, we would take care of most of our entitlement problem going forward, our financial so problem. So just hold it to a percent and a half a year yeah. and grow the economy at 3% and you're okay. You're okay, exactly. Uh, but there are other uh, very important examples of presidents that have managed to get Congress uh, to reduce benefits. And so, uh, you know, we look back over the last two decades and we don't see any um, retrenchment on entitlements. Right. And so for most of us, we say, well, we can't do anything about it. Nobody has. Uh, but farther back in history, um, uh, you can find- What about find Clinton? Clinton and the 1996 welfare reform. Is that an example of anything we ought to be happy about? I think it is. Good? Actually, okay. I think it is. Um, and in fact, it might actually have a little bit of a lesson for Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act. So um, when President Clinton took office, um, welfare um, was in crisis. Um, the um, welfare rolls had shot up after Reagan had left office during George uh, Herbert Walker Bush's term in office. Uh, President Clinton, as uh, you know, uh, entered office with a pledge to end welfare as we know it. Um, what people don't know about Clinton was that he used um, authority that had been uh, granted to the executive branch during the Reagan years to allow states 
to operate their own welfare programs under federal waivers of the federal law. So Bill Clinton, when he entered office, six states were operating under these waivers, right. their loan programs. By 1996, before the Welfare Reform Act was passed, mm -hmm. 45 states were operating their own welfare programs under federal waivers. Some states severely restricted eligibility. Other states established child care programs, training programs. So you're getting 45 experiments taking going place. On, right. So then when the Republicans took over Congress, they took up the cudgel of welfare reform. And eventually, uh, welfare reform passed and President Clinton signed it into office, uh, signed it into law. I believe that had it not been for this demonstration that states could spend taxpayer money better on welfare than the federal government could, I don't believe, absent that demonstration, that we would have seen the welfare reform law of 1996 uh, passing. It is a remarkable law, arguably the most successful entitlement reform in U.S. history. So one big lesson is push this stuff back to the states, let them experiment. All right. And when it comes to the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, which is now being debated in Congress, maybe it's time to take the Medicaid program and block grant that to the states. And the same thing with the um, insurance exchanges. Maybe it's time to let the states experiment with those exchanges uh, to allow them to develop exchanges that work better for their mix of the population. Got it. John, to moving toward a close here, a couple of quotations. The first is John Kogan in The High Cost of Good Intentions. The basic purposes of entitlements, their structure, and the level of government that operates them, move them back to the states, need to be thoroughly restructured, close quote. Here's a second quotation. Donald Trump announcing his candidacy for president. Quote, save Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security without cuts, have to do it, close quote. So what do we do? Anybody who is concerned about reforming entitlements just has to wait out the Trump administration? Or is it, is it the case that Donald Trump is making a calculation here? First, we get economic growth. We've got to cut taxes. We've got to get growth. And I'm not taking on these huge fights. After all, George W. Bush spent the first two years of his second term trying to get Social Security reform and got nothing. Legislation wasn't even introduced. They ran into a wall. Trump is saying, I'm not running into that wall. We're going to get growth first. What do you think? Well, who am I to try to get inside Donald uh, Trump's <laughs> head? Uh, but, but I can only hope that he has decided that economic growth uh, is going to be the central policy of his um, first couple of years in office and then he'll turn to entitlement. And I, I think when he uh, becomes more familiar with actually how important these entitlements are uh, for his own budget, uh, I think I'm, I'm hoping that he'll see uh, the need uh, for some, uh, some type of change. All right, last question. Toward the end of the high cost of good intentions, you quote your friends, the late economist Rosen Milton Friedman, quote, Tides in the affairs of societies begin in the minds of men, then spread to the conduct of public policy, close quote. It actually reminds me of Margaret Thatcher who said, first win the argument, mm -hmm. then change the policy. Right. The question I have is, 
that's a slow process. You, you've just, you've kicked it off here, but that's a slow process. And entitlement spending is choking the budget. In particular, it's squeezing out defense spending. Is there time? Are you, are you, are you I mean, do we have three decades to, to, for this to all of the intellectual ferment to work its way through to policy change? Are you optimistic? Yes, I am. You've optimistic. just become a grandfather. <laughs> right. I am is your Is your little granddaughter going yes. to grow up in a country that has entitlements under control? Absolutely. Really? I, yes, yes. I, I, uh, I am a, a complete optimist on this. Look, the tide has been coming in for some time. Well, since uh, the beginning of the republic. <laughs> no, I, no. Think, I think the tide of correction. The tide of correction has been coming in. I think the, the, the Ronald Reagan's administration was the beginning of that tide. Um, I think the Obama administration was a, a complete exception uh, to the tide. Um, if you look at the intellectual world, what you see is very sound arguments that are slowly gathering uh, support um, among the populace for some type of change uh, in, in the entitlement system. Um, and I think what we need to move it forward, though, is a president uh, and maybe a Congress, but mostly a president who believes uh, that uh, in the necessity of reform. Um, we don't have that right now, uh, but hopefully um, we'll have a president who uh, recognizes the need for reform and the need to get these entitlements under control. John Kogan, who argues that Ronald Reagan, that Obama was the anomaly, not Ronald yes. Reagan, right. that the Reagan was just the beginning. Yes. John Kogan, author of The High Cost of Good Intentions, a History of U.S. Federal Entitlement Programs. Thank you. Peter, thank you very much. I'm Peter Robinson for Uncommon Knowledge and the Hoover Institution. Thank you. Mm -hmm.